the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. It's turned out to be a day marked by tragedy in South Florida. And obviously we want to lift all of those who are affected by it uh, to the Lord in our prayers, asking for the peace and comfort that uh, is so necessary right now. As you may have already heard by now, there has been um, another tragic school shooting in Fort Lauderdale or near Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Um there's multiple fatalities, uh, others who are injured. Uh, the shooter evidently is in custody. Um, but we who are Christians, we need to understand that we have an obligation to keep praying for those who uh, have been so horribly, horribly affected uh, and do so without uh, being embarrassed. This is uh, when Jesus is at his best. This is when he draws nearest to those who are his and wants to draw even nearer uh, to those who don't know him. Uh, so please keep the people in the, the Fort Lauderdale area uh, in your prayers. And uh, just a very, very, very sad day. You know, one thing, and I'm talking to mostly Christians. I'll introduce myself in the program in just a moment, but I didn't think it was appropriate uh, to begin. Um, whenever you see mass shootings like this, again, I'm talking to primarily Christians in this audience, and I know how foolish the world thinks what I'm about to say sounds and they'll twist it and turn it. That's okay. But whenever you see multiple homicides, multiple shootings, it is always, and I don't mean most of the time, it is always the devil whose mission is to destroy. So we need to be ever vigilant. We need to always be in prayer. And it's not just prayer for us, you know, and the area that we live in, but this is a world that is ripe for Jesus' return. This is a world that Paul describes in Second Timothy chapter 3 when he talks about the very last of the last days. Now, I'm not using this as an opportunity to, to hype Jesus' return, just to remind you of the fact that Jesus is coming back soon and we need to be ready. And when we're faced with tragedies like the ones that happened uh, started just a couple of hours ago. Well, that's when we need to look up. Christians, we have the words of life. We have the only source of comfort. And whether or not the world wants to hear it, we have an obligation to declare it. So let's commit together to keep the people in Fort Lauderdale in our prayers, those who are horribly affected. It is a tragedy of immense proportions. One other comment, and then I'll get into the program and what we're going to do here today, but I also um, want to pray for our friends in Sutherland Springs, those who are affected, because this, of course, will give the enemy an opportunity to bring up um, sort of a, a, as a trigger warning would, uh, be able to attack them, and um, you know, they can be traumatized all over again, so please keep those in our local area who were victims and lost people of the 
Sutherland Springs shooting not too long ago. I would appreciate it. Let me just pray for them really quickly. Jesus, we lift up those who have been affected by this tragedy. We lift up everyone from the shooter who caused it to those who sent their children to high school today, never dreaming that their kids wouldn't return. We pray for those who have been wounded, Lord. We pray that somehow in this tragedy, by the power of your Spirit, you bring people to you, Lord. Please do this. And as I just asked our audience, Jesus, I also want to pray for those who are close to us who've been affected from Sutherland Springs. This will trigger flashbacks and nightmares. Would you just wrap your arms around them and comfort them so? Please, God, we ask you to do this for your glory. Amen. Well, you know where you're, you've tuned into. I'm Ron Arbaugh, the pastor of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and the program is The Word to Send Them for Life. It's a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions or life questions or whatever other questions you might have according to the information that the Bible has provided for us. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. That's 340-9585. You can also call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app if you're driving in your car. The safest way for you to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. All you have to do is hit the Call Now button uh, on your face, your app, and you'll be connected directly to the studio producer. Because it's Wednesday here at Calvary Chapel, we've got our Old Testament Bible study tonight. I'm in 2 Samuel chapter 5. and. Uh, this has nothing to do with the presentation of Second Samuel 5 that I'm going to be giving. But this study and the one that follows next week, we're going to be two studies in Second Samuel chapter 5. They're monumentally important. Monumentally important, especially in terms of application, preparing uh, for the, the opposition that we receive, preparing... Uh, for whatever God has in store for you while God prepares you. I hope that makes sense. We are always being prepared for something um, because God has already prepared something for us. And tonight's Bible study um, and and next Wednesday's as well um, are monumentally important. So um, calvarysa.com, you can watch them online tonight or you're welcome to join us here at 7 o'clock. Tomorrow, of course, Paula will be live in studio with me on the date-day edition of the program. So ladies... That is your day to um, be prioritized. One more time, 340-9585. Our first question comes from our mobile app. Uh, we sent in anonymously. Um, on Cain's sacrifice not being accepted, does that mean his one sin has kept him out of heaven? Anonymous, the answer to that question is no. We're never um, sent to hell for one sin. That's really important. You, you need to understand that. Um, the only reason anybody goes to hell is for rejecting Jesus Christ. And Cain's sin was a sin of unbelief. And his disobedience meant that he didn't believe the Word of God. You know, we have been given the Word of God in, in our Bibles, but we've also been given as a gift from heaven the living Word of God, Jesus Christ. And since the Holy Spirit's job is to testify about Him, when we reject Jesus, that's because we don't believe. It's not that we can't believe. It's that we won't believe. We refuse to believe what's obvious. And Cain was guilty. Cain knew what he was doing. He did it with malice. Um, not only did he was he disobedient to God, but the sin of murdering his brother... Uh, God established that when uh, the life of man is taken, the one who took that life, his life shall too be taken. And uh, Cain was guilty, but his sin of unbelief is what keeps him out of heaven. And Anonymous, it is exactly the same thing, the only thing that keeps people out of heaven now. It's just refusing to believe in Jesus Christ. And let me take just a moment to expand on this, just because... I've got a sort of, a, I hope, a leading of the Spirit that you're asking this question, thinking maybe that something you've done is too much. 
we're all guilty of sin, thus we're separated from God. Jesus is the only way that we can bridge that gap, the only way we can reconcile to a holy God. I think sometimes, Anonymous, we forget that God is holy. We forget to have this healthy fear of God. And so we just sort of do our own thing. But by not believing in Jesus, we've made sure that our sin condemns us. In John chapter 3, Jesus talking to Nicodemus, he said that we're born condemned, already condemned. As you have a, 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 a before you have your first conscious thought, we're born with the sin nature and we're condemned. The good news is that Jesus frees us from being condemned. Jesus gives us his righteousness. And everybody who rejects Jesus, Anonymous, every single person is still guilty of sin and thus separated from God and all they have to do is believe had Cain repented God tried to stop him Cain if you do what is right will it not go well with you and he simply didn't believe didn't want to believe so the fact that Cain belonged to Adam and Eve you know we talk about kids being raised in church well Cain was raised with the original two people. But he refused to believe. Every single person has to make their own decision. Every single one. Thanks, Anonymous. Let's go to Troy calling on line one. Troy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Pastor Ron, I've been uh, thinking about this uh, for a couple weeks. So I was just wanting to get your thoughts on it. So um, we've been... Uh, reading the New Testament, uh, we're always waiting for Christ's coming. I mean, you can read it throughout the, the New Testament, waiting anxiously for the return of Christ. Uh, Paul talks about, you actually just mentioned it a few, a few minutes ago in the beginning of the program. So my question is, for us Christians, the actual return of Christ is not the rapture when we meet him in the sky. So we'll already be with him. And then if we pass away, we'll be with them. So really, when we talk about Christ's second return, waiting anxiously for it, we're actually already with Christ when he establishes his millennium kingdom on earth. And that's considered the second coming, but not the rapture. So to wait patiently for Christ is to, uh, almost in a sense, unless you're left behind, to be passed. You passed away, or you were caught up through the rapture. Is that the right way of, am I thinking right there? Yeah, I think so, Troy, if I understand you correctly. Uh, Waiting patiently for Christ, um, uh, and and I would add the word eagerly, Um, waiting patiently and waiting eagerly means that we occupy till he comes. That's the whole idea. And by occupying, I mean, he told us to let our light so shine before men that they could see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. So waiting for him isn't just sort of a nonchalant, will come quickly, Lord Jesus kind of thing. But it's being active in sharing your faith. It's being active in walking with, with the Lord every day by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's being active in producing good fruit. And by that, I mean the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control. Those are fruits of the Spirit. So as we are here on this earth, waiting eagerly and patiently for him to return, uh, we do that by fulfilling the, the, the commission that God gave us to declare his word throughout the entire earth. Now, I want to make sure everybody understands, Troy, you have a good handle on this. Uh, we're waiting, Christians who are waiting, we're not waiting for Jesus' return to earth because that would be silly, it would make no sense because we're going to be with him when he returns. Revelation chapter 19 is where you can read about that. So we're waiting for him to call us to heaven. Paul said that the the um, uh, rapture of the church uh, was our blessed hope. So we're waiting to be with Jesus. Now, if we die uh, naturally, or, or unnaturally, it doesn't matter if we die, we, we instantly go into the presence of the Lord. So uh, we don't have to wait for that. That's just a natural process of, of living and dying. 
But the rapture of the church is what we're waiting eagerly for. It is our motivation. Jesus is going to rescue us from the great tribulation. That's our motivation. Now, whether it happens uh, in a week or in another thousand years, it doesn't matter. The commission given to Christians, Troy, is always the same. Wait eagerly, wait patiently. And the only way we can do that is by waiting. Uh, the only way we can do it, waiting for the Lord, is by by being his witness here on earth every day everywhere we go so uh, the next thing to happen is the rapture of the church we will be in heaven with jesus for seven years at the great wedding banquet then revelation chapter 19 says we will return with him now we'll be in our glorified resurrected bodies our sin nature completely wiped out but we will return to a world that has been crushed by what's called the time of jacob's trouble or jacob's distress um, a devastated world after the Great Tribulation. And then we will rule and reign for a thousand years with Jesus, again, in our glorified resurrected bodies, while others will be in flesh and blood bodies, and the earth will uh, experience a, a really great reversal uh, for a thousand years. So we're waiting for the rapture of the church, not the return of the Lord. Uh, we'll be with Jesus. Can you imagine, Troy, being at the wedding banquet? Think about this for a moment. You're at the wedding banquet. You're in the presence of the Lord. And suddenly he says, we've got to go. Where are we going, Lord? I don't want to leave this banquet. We're going to reclaim my creation. We're going for the people that were left behind. At that moment, we'll be ready, I promise you. So, Troy, it sounds like you have it figured out pretty well. Thank you very, very much for the phone call. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is our next question from our email inbox from Nacho. Pastor Ron, understanding God's nature and plan, what do you think would have happened in the Garden of Eden, or what would you think God would have done if Adam had not eaten from the apple after Eve had? Um, Nacho, I, w there's no way we can answer a question like that. Um, because it's it's we can't reverse history. We the hypothetical question has no basis uh, in reality. Of course, God knew exactly what Eve was going to do. He knew exactly what Adam was going to do. Um, we we can we can guess that knowing the nature and the character of God, um, he would have been very proud of Adam for standing. Uh, you know, remember when he asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Now I know that you fear God. I know that you love God. Uh, but he never had any intention of asking. So the, the, the hypothetical questions, the what ifs, there's really no value in, in thinking about them or discussing them. You know, we can discuss or we can think about things that we don't have answers to. But when it comes to changing what's actually happened, what's already been reported on, uh, there really is no value. And I get questions like that a lot, Nacho, where people are saying, well, what if this happened instead of this? And the answer is, uh, all we can deal with is what has happened, not what might happen or what could have happened. I think sometimes we get caught up in those kind of questions to the detriment of our daily walk with the Lord. Uh, I know where our minds like to go. I know we're curious about those kind of things. But uh, those are answers with, uh, I'm sorry, questions without answers. So what we do is we focus on the answers that we do know, and that's to be with Jesus. Here is a question from Jeff. He says, how can I deal with things in my past that I know were wrong now that I'm a Christian? Jeff, you know, when we get saved, um, we, we all of us, we have a lot of baggage. There's a lot of horrible things that we've done, people that we've hurt, people even that we've betrayed. Um, it's so easy to do a lot of guilt. And you know, Jeff, just I can tell by the question that you asked, that we have an enemy who specializes in guilt. So the minute you get saved, he piles it on because he doesn't want your Christianity to be contagious. So here's what you do with the things in your past. You forget them. The Bible says those sins are as far from you as east is from west. There's no value in beating yourself up. There's no value in feeling really, really badly about them. What you should do is rejoice in the fact that they are no longer accusations that have any merit for you. 
Now, we know we did those things, but God has forgiven them. He's wiped out our sins. And he's given us his righteousness in place of that. So our response then should be one of so much gratitude. Jesus, I'm guilty of all those things. And yet, you've taken my punishment. You paid the price for those things. You know, Jeff, the first time, is, I, I, will, I remember this like it was yesterday. It wasn't, obviously, it was a very, very long time ago. But I remember as a Christian, now I was guilty of terrible, terrible sin. And as a Christian, I knew I was saved. I knew that my sins were forgiven. I couldn't explain it to anybody, but I knew it. And I remember the first time somebody accused me of something that I didn't do, something that I wasn't guilty of. And you know your old habits when somebody, when you're guilty of stuff, when somebody accuses you, you try to lie and you try to defend yourself. Well, that was my first instinct because that's my flesh. And then I thought, hey, wait a minute. I'm innocent of that. I didn't do that. And I remember it was one of the best days I had with the Lord. I remember just rejoicing that, Jesus, I'm innocent of this. And instantly I knew that it didn't matter what anybody else said. Because God knew and I knew. I was so happy to finally be innocent of something that I turned that opportunity for Satan to mess with me into a great, great, great afternoon of worship. So, just don't deal with them, forget them, leave them where God buried them. The only comment I'll make relative to that, Jeff, is that if there are people that you can make amends with, do so. If there are people that you need to say I'm sorry to, do so. But no more guilt. No more guilt, because Jesus took the guilt so you didn't have to deal with it. 340-9585. We're inside five minutes for this half of the program. We'd love your live calls. Here's an anonymous question again. Uh, other than trying my best to do good, how can I glorify God in my life? Anonymous, I hope this makes sense to you. You sound The question sounds like coming from a, uh, a relatively new believer. Stop trying to. Stop trying to do good and be with Jesus. Now, I hope you understand what that means. It just means that you get up every morning and say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I want to be with you. I want to spend all day with you. Because when you're with him, you know you're okay. When you're with him, you can't help but to glorify God. When you're with him, he's going to be free to bring other people to you that you can share with about your Jesus. So these are really important things. When we try to do good stuff, we always end up blowing it. In my flesh is no good thing, Paul writes. Paul also writes when he's weak, then he's strong. The same thing applies to you, Anonymous. So when you're out there trying to do your best, your best isn't good. So just be with Jesus and let him do his best in you and then through you. And you'll understand exactly what I'm saying. Jesus said, if you abide in me, I will abide in you. And the health, the vibrancy of our walk with Jesus depends on abiding in Christ. Being with him only and always. Now, it doesn't mean you won't be with other people. But it means that your interactions with other people will be infinitely richer. You can take Jesus to work with you, Anonymous. You can take Jesus to school with you. You can take Jesus with you when you're in, in your office and the door is closed and when the enemy is tempting you with fleshy things. If Jesus is there with you, you're not going to give in. And when you're with Jesus daily, and I, I don't mean just your devotion time in the morning or the prayers that we offer but I mean including Jesus in your minute by minute hour by hour life every day you will never have to ask this question again I tell our church now they understand these things because they've been listening to me for 23 years they can finish my sentences but I tell my church stop trying and start dying 
Just get up every day, kill your flesh, give Jesus his rightful place on the throne of your heart, and then you'll know that you're glorifying God. That's completely contrary to what we're taught in this world. My dad used to teach me, Ronnie, look out for number one. You have to take care of you. You have to do good. Don't make me embarrassed. Don't make me ashamed. Protect our name. All those things that really mess us up. Jesus just says, will you let me be in charge? And if he's in charge of your life, you cannot help but to bring glory to God. I love the heart behind this question. I hope now, Anonymous, you have a little bit more understanding about how to bring God glory in your life. Again, let your light so shine before men. Jesus is the source of that light. When we reflect his light, people are going to notice. We have 30 minutes left in our Wednesday program, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-5757. You're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. To the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of the Wednesday edition of the program, 340-9585 for your calls. Here's a question from Leslie. Uh, he or she says, is there a way to know for sure what God's will is for my life and how can I get there? Leslie, uh, this is, I'm, I'm going to go back to what I just answered with my anonymous question uh, before the break. Um, we can know God's general will for our life with specificity. Um, it is God's will that you flee sexual immorality as an example. There's all kinds of, um, of direction in your New Testament to tell us what God's will is. Now, the problem for most of us is when we think of God's will, we don't, we don't quantify it as a, well, today, right now, what's God's will? We're looking for God's will for five years down the road or 10 years down the road or 20 years down the road. Or God, what is this great calling that you have? And what we need to understand is that we never, ever know the answers to that until we're with God today. If you're with Jesus today, if you're in his will, and by the way, if you're with him, relationally, if you're talking to him, abiding in him, was my response to the last question, uh, you're in his will. What that means is you can't miss God's will for tomorrow or for the next day or the day after that. So the key is to abide in Jesus, walk with him. He said, I know my sheep, I call them by name, and they follow me. And a lot of us were hearing this call of God to do certain things, we don't do them. We're not following him, and we wonder why we're so confused about his will for our life. So here's what we can know. We can know every single day for sure, 100%, that we're in the will of God. Every day. By examining our hearts daily, Paul says, by repenting of sins, confessing, agreeing with God that, that sin in our life is really sin, and asking to be forgiven. 1 John 1, 9 says that he will purify us from all unrighteousness. When we're obedient, we know we're in God's will. Again, because we always view God's will as, well, what's next or what's down the road? I think, Leslie, what we need to do is sort of shorten our vision and just find out what God's will is for today. The Bible says that we walk by faith and not by sight. If God told us what our will, what his will for us was going to be for 10 years from now or 15 years from now, we'd all be terrified. So here's what we need to know. He's preparing you today. If you're in his will, he's preparing you today for what he have tomorrow and all the tomorrows thereafter. And to get to that place where you're in his will, 
is a process of following Jesus, abiding in Christ. Uh, I told our church here recently, Leslie, that uh, I know for sure that I'm doing exactly what God wants me to do. That Paula and I are in his perfect will. We love what God has us doing. It's not easy. There's always difficulty. There's always tons of heartbreak. But nevertheless, we know beyond any doubt that we're in his will. What that means is I never have to guess. I don't have to listen to the lies of, of Satan. Well, how do you know? I just know. And the reason I know is because it's taken me 23 years to get to today here in San Antonio. And every single day, following Jesus, sometimes following him to really scary places, sometimes following him through really, really deep and dark valleys. I've always known I was doing what he wanted me to do. And that confidence, based on his word now, that confidence allows me to persevere through the dark times. That confidence allows me to deal with the heartbreak. And here I am, all these years later, and I'm still standing right in the middle of where he wanted me to be. Now, I'll be honest with you, Leslie, in this sense that if 23 years ago Jesus would have shown me, and I can include Paul in this as well, if he would have shown us the pain that we were going to go through, if he'd have shown us the heartbreak, if he'd have shown us the difficulty, we would have run the other direction. We weren't ready for all of that. And I say that because I want you to know that Jesus will tell you what you need to know when you need to know it and not a minute before. So the way to get into his will for 10 years from now or 20 years from now is to be with him today and again tomorrow and the next day. There's no other way to know. And then finally, Leslie, I think we have to learn to be content not knowing what God's will is, his long-term will. I think what we've got to do is just live in the present. Jesus said, be anxious for nothing that concerns tomorrow. Today has enough of its own to be worried or anxious about. So what we do is we hold on to Jesus today. And in my case, in Paula's case, since we got here almost 23 years ago, every morning... In spite of what it looked like, in spite of how frightened I was, every morning I've awakened to a whole new batch of grace. And that's the key. So stop thinking long term, start thinking really, really, really short term. If there is sin in your life, Leslie, you've got to get rid of it or you'll never know that you're in God's will. You'll never know what it is. So respond positively to the revelation of God's general will. Uh, forgive others as you have been forgiven by God. If you're unwilling to do that, then you've sort of lost the fear of God. You've decided it's okay for you alone to hold on to unforgiveness. And that will keep you from hearing the voice of God. That will keep you from hearing what his next step for you is. People drink too much. If they are smoking dope, if they're addicted to pornography, and when I say addicted, I mean addicted to sin, then you're not going to know what God's will is. If you're angry or discouraged all the time, you're not going to know God's will. Here's a hard one. Pray without ceasing, Paul writes to the churches in Thessalonica. That's God's will for your life. How are you doing in praying? Now, I don't mean on your knees in a dark room 24 hours a day. But I mean, if you're abiding in Christ, you're talking to Jesus all day long. I remember I promised you a few minutes ago that you would never, ever not know that you're in his will. 
But if you're not talking to him, if you're not cleansing your heart, your spirit, your mind with the Word of God. So that's how we can know. Be with Jesus. Be in His Word. Talk to Jesus while you're with Him. And serve Him. Take a stand for Him publicly. And I promise you, you'll never ask this question again. I just thought of something, Leslie. This is a good opportunity to say to everybody out there that if you're asking this question, it's a God's way of nudging us and saying, you know what? You're not right with me. And no matter where you are, you're in God's will right now if you're there with Him. That means in a marriage that's been troubled, don't remain in that troubled marriage. Fix it. And if your husband or wife won't fix it, you do your part. That's being in the will of God. If you're going through something really difficult, ask Jesus to walk through it with you. You're in the will of God. So that's the short way, believe it or not, of answering a question. But that is, uh, that's the best I can do. Thank you very much, Leslie. Here is a question from Marshall. He wants to know, do Jews have a divine right to the land in Israel? The answer is absolutely 100% yes. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And we listen to the media, we listen to other peoples that lay claim to Jerusalem. Especially now with the United States saying that we're going to build an embassy in Jerusalem, formally recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. We need to know that God is the final word. Israel is his. He gave it to Abraham and Abraham's descendants unconditionally a very long time ago. Now, it's not just the people who oppose the Jews who have a problem with belief. Jews have always had a problem of unbelief. The people of God, Israel, the Jews, have never, ever controlled the amount of territory that God has given them. Tonight in our study in Second Samuel, we're going to see David, the, the king after God's own heart. David already for the first time, will bring Israel together. All the tribes, the first time since the end of the book of Joshua, united under one king. That's important because Jesus is going to rule on David's throne. David, Ezekiel 37, says is going to be Israel's prince during that time. And once again, all Israel will be united under one true king. Now, that's not going to happen till the millennial reign. We all know that. But that land belongs to Jews, period. No matter how hard the world tries to ignore it, God has a pretty good track record in keeping that which is his. So, Marshall, I hope that helps. Thank you for asking the question. We need to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. When we're doing that, Marshall and to everybody else out there, we're praying for the return of the Prince of Peace because that's the only time there's going to be peace. 340-9585, Randy writes in and says, I think Christians should study other religions in order to be able to understand what they believe. Do you agree? Uh, Randy, sort of in a small way, I agree, but, but generally speaking, no, I don't agree. Romans sixteen nineteen says that we're to be wise about that which is good and simple or naive about that which is evil. And um, what we should do as Christians is know what we believe and why we believe it and declare it to others. You know, frankly, Randy, I don't care why uh, a Muslim or a, a, a Jew, um, a Buddhist, I don't care why they believe uh, what they believe. Um, I, I don't have any... Interest. I see no value in understanding what they believe because I know that what they believe conflicts with what I know to be true. So here's what I think we ought to do, Randy. I think as Christians, we should know our 
Bible so well, we should know Jesus so intimately that people can see the light coming from us and then our lives can be what draws people to Jesus. And I think about all the time people waste studying things that aren't true, things that really have no value, instead of studying what we know to be the truth. So Randy, that's a very firm conviction that I have. If I know what I believe, if I know who I believe, then I'm going to convince others. Final thought on this, Randy, is this. I say all the time in this program that we don't have to defend what we believe. We just declare it. It's not our presentation of the gospel that has power. It's the gospel itself that has power. And if we declare the gospel and God's been working on the heart the person that we're sharing it with, that person is going to respond and get saved. So remember, we tell people the truth about Jesus. Jesus was very active in telling Jews what they didn't understand, and they thought they did. For example, the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Well, Jews had it all wrong. Jesus just declared the truth. And some believe, most did not. But that's what we need to know about our faith. So, Randy, that's the best I can do. 340-9585. Walt asked a question. I love this question. What was the reason people in Genesis built the Tower of Babel? Um... Well, the reason they built it was to put themselves in a place where God couldn't judge them by means of a flood. When it says that they built a tower to the heavens, now obviously we know that wasn't the case because we couldn't build something to the heaven. But uh, what it means, they built it up into the sky, what they were trying to do. And if you look really closely in that account, they were sort of waterproofing the bricks that they were using. Now, even though God promised he would never destroy the world by a flood, Again, because of unbelief, they simply refused to accept that. And when they started sinning, and believe me, they did, when they started conspiring with one another and started rebelling against God, they knew that the way they were living was wrong. They had this thing in their mind that says, well, you know, he judged the world by a flood once, he could do it again. It's amazing when you're living wrong, you, you know you deserve to be judged. So what they did is they built a tower that they hoped would keep them dry if God ever flooded the earth again. That is perfect definition, Walt, of the insanity of sin. I can waterproof the bricks. I can build it above the flood like God couldn't get to them above whatever they thought was the level of the flood. So that's why they did it. They wanted to sin. They wanted to sin with impunity. And uh, they thought if they did that, they would build this tower. Then they were untouchable by God. Uh, and oh, how they forgot. Here is a question from Zach. Zach says, uh, Pastor Ron, I don't understand why God gave King Hezekiah an extra 15 years of life. Would God give other people extra time? Zach, I don't understand why God gave King Hezekiah an extra 15 years of life either. Now, Hezekiah was a good king. We know the New Testament principle is that God will not forget the works uh, of those who do what God wants him to do. He, he is a long memory. He remembers those things. Hezekiah was a good king. And at the end of his life, when he fell sick, is his sickness going to lead to death? The prophet said, yes, it is. That's what God's response was. Uh, he thought, well, what value does all of this have? I have no son. I have no heir. And so he asked for more time. He wanted a son. We don't even know why he couldn't have a son. And God sent a message through Isaiah to Hezekiah that he would be granted 15 years of life. He would have a son. Now here's the problem. And I think this is the lesson, Zach, that we need to take from this whole story. 
it was in that 15 years that the worst king in Israel's history was born. Manasseh, Hezekiah's son, was born. He was the most evil of all of the kings of Israel or Judah. He did more damage, caused more pain than all of the others. I think the lesson is that we need to leave God in charge of life and death. It's very important. Yeah, be careful of what you ask for. So uh, he did that. Now, an interesting thing about Manasseh. Um, at the end, after all of his horrible things, he repented. And we're going to see Manasseh in heaven. It's going to be one of those things like, you're here. You just say, yeah, I've heard that before. But uh, it, it, that extra 15 years, which was clearly God's will. Again, God didn't cause Hezekiah to get sick. But it was God's will that things just play out naturally. Um, it costs people a lot. Does God give other people extra time? I'm certain he does. We don't know about it. Um, but, you know, we we often pray. We When people get sick here at Calvary Chapel, Lord, be gracious, be merciful, spare us the sorrow upon sorrow, Lord. We really want you to touch and to heal, Jesus. And then I always include, according to thy will, O God. I let God know this is my will. He said, with a grateful heart, with thanksgiving, we can make our requests known to God. I always put my prayer requests in that framework. And when God answers our prayers, we're thrilled. Um, we haven't had any 15-year disasters but truth is, we all ask for more time. It's instinctive in all of us. And so, um, that's a hard one, Zach. We don't understand. If I was God, I would have said, no, if I give you a son, do you know the evil he's going to do, the pain he's going to cause? But I'm not God, and God is patient and slow to anger and abounding in love. And Hezekiah was a good king, so God granted Hezekiah's request. You know, something else I think about Zach and that whole thing, and this is just crazy, it's the way my mind works, but he knew he was going to get another 15 years. Can you imagine as that clock counted down what Hezekiah must have been going through? Oh, i got 14 years left, i got 10 years left. As it gets even closer, i got one year left. But we won't know those answers till we get to heaven. Theo asks, um, my question is about Revelation 3.10. Does it prove that Christians will not go through the Great Tribulation? We're inside four minutes. Uh, I didn't realize we'd gone that uh, time had gone by that quickly. Uh, Revelation 3.10 is the letter to Philadelphia, one of Jesus' seven letters uh, to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. This is in chapter 3. This is the sixth of seven letters. And Philadelphia is uh, the true church. And Revelation chapter 3, verse 10 says that God will keep them from the hour of trial that is going to come upon all those who live upon the earth. Now, clearly, that was had a historical context. It was true for Philadelphia. They were a weak church in the sense that they, they weren't impressive. They didn't have much in the way of power. Uh, we wouldn't look at them and say, wow, there's a mega church. God's really blessing them. So there's a historical context, and, and, it, and it certainly was fulfilled and came true. But there's also a prophetic context. We sometimes forget that the entire book of Revelation, according to chapter 1, is a prophecy. So these seven letters also have prophetic value. And when he talks about that hour of tribulation that is going to come upon the whole earth and all those who live upon the earth, the word is literally in Greek, earth dwellers. And what he's saying is that that hour of trouble the, that we call the Great Tribulation is going to come upon the earth, but it's only going to be upon those who are on the earth. We're not going to be on the earth. So, Theo, Revelation 3.10 is a promise. Uh, it's not a, a, a proof text in the sense that uh, a lot of people reject the prophetic nature of these seven letters, I think, to their uh, their, their own foolishness. Um, but it's a promise that if you're with Jesus, 
then the trouble that's going to come upon the earth will not affect you. So again, I want to say this. Christians will not go through the Great Tribulation. And when I say Christians won't go through it, I mean all Christians. If you're walking with God or you're not walking with God, if you're really born again, you're going to be taken away in the rapture of the church and the Great Tribulation isn't going to affect you at all. Now, if that describes you, you're not walking with the Lord, but you, you're a real Christian, well, then get right with Jesus so you can enjoy whatever time we have left. All I know for sure is that that time is coming soon. And by soon, I mean suddenly, without warning. It could come today. It could come a thousand years from now. But we can be ready. And Jesus has promised us. That, just being grateful for that promise should motivate our lives to such a degree that we don't want anything to impact our relationship, our intimacy with God, thus our fruit with Jesus and our fruit for Him. So Revelation 3.10 is a promise. Uh, I think it falls short of being an absolute proof text. But Theo, it is enough for me, for sure. Thanks for the question. We're pretty much out of time, I think. Well, just I say that the music starts. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Remember to keep the people in Fort Lauderdale in your prayers. Keep the people in Sutherland Springs in your prayers. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Tomorrow, Paula will be live in studio with me on the date day edition of the program. Remember tonight, Second Samuel chapter five. We're going to do the first eight verses. For application, this is so important. You can watch it live at calvarysa.com. See you tomorrow at 4 o'clock. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The word to stand on for life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.